Welcome back to the Agorist Attorney Podcast, where I am a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer, and we talk about topics from the perspective of a freedom-minded attorney. I'm Patricia, a.k.a. Patty, a.k.a. the Agorist Attorney, and today is Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023, and this is episode number 10. I'm going to continue with the University of Montana article, picking up where we left off with Article 2, Section B, Section 2. As always, a link to the article will be in the show notes. Before I dive in, I wanted to do a little bit of cleanup. A couple of folks in the Telegram chat, or in a Telegram chat, <clears throat> had a great point when I was talking about contracts without that, where you don't know about the content not being a thing. So I misspoke. As always, I reserve the right to be dead ass wrong. You can sign a contract that you have not read. That's absolutely true, and it's a bad idea, but people do it all the time. Um, you can absolutely enter into a contract where you haven't read the terms, you kind of have an idea what it's about, but you don't really know what's in there. Um, that, that is a thing. What I was talking about was this, um, you know, this, nat- this straw man sovereign citizen theory talking about contracts that you entered into simply by getting a social security number or simply by getting a driver's license. Um, you cannot enter into a contract unless you know the p- possibility and potential of a contract exists. At a minimum, you have to know you're entering into a contract, even if you don't know all of the terms. Um, there are no secret contracts. You cannot you know, accidentally wink at somebody and suddenly be under contract to them to move all their firewood for the next five years. That's that's the thing that I'm not talking that that's the thing that I'm talking about that does not exist. So um wanted to clarify that. Everybody was totally right that I misspoke. Um there are contracts you can enter into where you don't know the terms. Typically those are called contracts of adhesion, but not always. Sometimes they're enforceable and sometimes they're not. But we can do an episode on that later. So that's that's the intro intro and we're gonna get right back to it. Okay, so I'm going to try that one more time. I just recorded a huge chunk and looked down and Anchor slash Spotify for podcasters had stopped recording unbeknownst to me and I don't know why. Um, So I am now recording in the app that goes with the mic that I use. It's called the Motive app. So Hopefully this works a little bit better and then I'll upload it into Anchor. So that's a little frustrating, but one of the things I said was that um, there are lawnmowers going on outside my window. It's a consequence to living next to a park. We love the park uh, 99.9% of the time, but sometimes it gets a little bit loud. So um, if you hear that, that's what it is. I'm going to jump into this section too. Um, I said a bunch of stuff in the other one. I don't remember what I said, but I'm sure I'll, I'll come back to it. Um, so let's let's get to it. Two, tactics used to free money from the straw man or when in commerce, do as commerce does. Use the Uniform Commercial Code. Now, before we get way into this, I want to talk a little bit about the Uniform Commercial Code. Um, people hear UCC, they hear Commercial Code, they, you know, they haven't worked with it necessarily, they haven't worked in it or around it. So basic idea is that this is a standardized set of laws and regulations for transacting business and it was established in 1953 because it was becoming really difficult for companies to transact business across state lines given various and different state laws governing commerce. 
So the Uniform Commercial Code is really important. It helps companies in different states transact with each other by providing a standard legal and contractual framework. The UCC laws have been fully adopted by most states in the U.S., Although there are some slight variations from state to state, the UCC code consists of nine separate articles. The UCC articles govern various type, types of transactions, including the sale of goods, but also banking and loans. Um, it's nine articles, and so there's banking, loans, goods, there's a few other things, um, and any company that conducts business transactions outside of their home state must comply with the Uniform Commercial Code. It's been fully adopted by most states. So the UCC regulates the sale of personal property and various other transactions. If you've ever purchased like a business or a vehicle in the past, chances are you may have signed a UCC one statement. Um, the title remains in the lender's possession until the loan is paid off. That's a really good example. The policies instituted under the UCC are largely focused on the activities of small businesses and entrepreneurs. And part of the intent was to clear up confusion over how each state might separately regulate such operations. Um, now, the UCC code regulates dealings involving personal property, but it does not govern real property such as land or any structures attached to the land. Um, it imposes standards for processing checks and types of other types of commercial paper, and it's often applied to the property secured by a bank where the title is held until the borrower pays off the balance of the of the financing. So Article 1 is general provisions and definitions. There's an Article 2 that's the sale of go goods, excluding real estate and service contracts. I'm checking my audio. goes to sleep, which isn't great, but it's still recording. Okay, Article 1 is uh, definitions. Article 2 is sale of goods, but not real estate, not service contracts. 2A is leases. 3 is checks, drafts, and other negotiable instruments, so notes, promissory notes. 4 is bank deposits and collections. 5 is letters of credit. Um, 6 is bulk sales, auctions, and liquidation of assets. 7 is documents of title, including warehouse, warehouse receipts, bulk sales, and bills of lading. Uh, eight is investment securities, um, specifically the holding of securities through intermediaries. Nine is secured transactions of personal property and agricultural liens, promissory notes, consignments, and security interests. Okay. Um, some outliers. Louisiana didn't adopt Article 2 or 2A. California has made some modifications implementing its own version of the UCC because, of course, California did that. Um, real estate contracts are different in California. Um, that's a whole thing. So what does it protect? It was established to protect all individuals engaged in business. Okay. Um, created in order to standardize commerce between states, whether that commerce occurs between individuals or businesses. So 2 and 2A is sale of goods, not real estate. Okay. That is, that's kind of the overview. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind when we start hearing about all this kind of weirdness. Um, that the sovereign citizens try and use the UCC for. Okay, through redemption, a process that looks similar to divestment from an artificial person, the sovereign citizen can separate himself from the fictitious straw man and make use of the funds that are located in the treasury direct account. The redeemed sovereign citizen will also then be the controller and creditor with the highest lien hold interest in the straw man. As for the process, it begins with the UCC, which sovereign citizens believe is legislated in parentheses, administrative law, that codifies the rules for all commercial transactions between countries, states, and individuals. Not between countries, between states, <laughs> okay? We talked about this. It's, it's, it's individuals and businesses across state lines. 
Anyway, moving on. Because, quote, the courts acknowledge they do not have the authority or jurisdiction to amend, alter, or nullify any of the articles of the UCC. Invocation of the code is believed to be unassailable. Well, we just talked about that not being true, right? The state of California declined to adopt um, the, the codes on real estate. It's different in California. Louisiana didn't adopt too, right? So um, this is already incorrect. Anyway. Moving on. First, the sovereign citizen must submit a copy of UCC financing statement UCC1 and hard copy with an original signature presented via certified or registered mail to both the state and the secretary of the treasury. Once filed, it becomes a legal document of public record identifying the filer as the secured party, presumably to the straw man. Thereafter, sovereign citizens believe that no court can lawfully rule on the fact or existence of the filing itself because that filing is a legal fact and there is a secured vested interest therein holding a superior claim and all other parties at interest who file thereafter must acknowledge, accept, and respect the secured party's superior and prior position. Adjustments to the original document can be made by filing an amendment under UCC3, which permits amendments to a UCC1 financing statement. Isn't word salad fantastic? Um, they're poking at a couple of kernels of truth in law. One of the things they're talking about with this, the filing itself is a legal fact. There are things in a court case where you can ask the court to take what's called judicial notice of a thing. Typically those are recorded documents, not filed documents. A recorded title on a house that you've purchased. Um, a court can take judicial notice of the existence of certain laws, codes, rules put out by the government. They are not going to take judicial notice of some random piece of paper you filed. Um, they're, they're just not. Um, so they're barking up the wrong tree here. In any event, we're going to keep going. Alternatively, some sovereign citizens believe that one must send a non-negotiable chargeback and non-negotiable bill of exchange to the United States Secretary of Treasury, along with a copy of your birth certificate, the evidence, the manufacturer's certificate of origin of the straw man. By doing this, one discharges her, his or her portion of the public debt, releasing the real man from the debts, liabilities, and obligations of the straw man, which grants that person access to the funds as the secured party. Once these documents are filed, one can also use bills of exchange or other documents to redeem funds or pay for goods. A bill of exchange purportedly accesses the Treasury Direct Account, which they believe contains the balance of the straw man's bond under 26 U.S.C. Section 163H3B2. All a sovereign citizen needs to do is write a bill of exchange for the exact amount owed and send it to the creditor and the Treasury Department. In theory, the Treasury Department will pay the amount out of the Treasury Direct Account. Alternatively, it can be referred to as a chargeback notice, which should be sent to both the creditor and the Treasury, uh, yeah, the creditor and the Treasury Department. When a claim for back taxes is made by the IRS, a federal or state taxing agency, a sovereign citizen need only stamp accepted for value and mail it to the Secretary of the Treasury for discharge. Sovereign citizens believe the authority for this action is documented in House Joint Resolution 192 and the Supreme Court's holding in Guarantee Trust Company versus Henwood. By and through this process, sovereign citizens believe they have unlocked the key to reclaim their wealth from the government. Okay, editorial for me. They believe that they've unlocked a way to not pay taxes is what's happening. Now, a lot of people that do this will say, well, you know, I did this and I never heard from the IRS again, or I did this and I never heard from the state again. 
You guys, I have taxes that I properly filed in 2019 um, that they still have not processed. I could have written any kind of flying unicorn nonsense on there and I still would not have any engagement from the IRS because they haven't processed it. They cashed the check, you bet they did, but they haven't even looked. They, In fact, they said, hey, um, we didn't get your return for 2019. You know, I've sent it twice, certified mail. I know they got it. Obviously they got it because they opened it and cashed the stupid check. But just because somebody tries this and gets no response from a from a enormous mismanaged governmental agency doesn't mean that they actually got away with it. Um, do this enough times for enough money and you're going to find out what happens just like Wesley Snipes found out what happens. I'll talk about that case later. So let's go on to section C. This one talks about a sovereign citizen's constitutional right to travel. So the most common type of sovereign citizen claim encountered by local and state police as well as federal border patrol agents is the right to travel. Citing the Constitution, Supreme Court cases, and a plethora of other sources, sovereign citizens believe they are not required to have driver's licenses, license plates, vehicle registrations, or to stop at border or sobriety, sobriety checkpoints. Similar to other claims, sovereign citizens discussing the right to travel place special emphasis on the words being used. They differentiate between a driver and a traveler, an automobile and a motor vehicle, commercial and non-commercial, and public versus private conveyances. Once a sovereign citizen claims that he or she is merely a traveler or traveling, he or she then uses federal and state cases to support the right to travel. Sovereign citizens also believe the right to travel constitutes a complete bar on government interference with travel in the absence of probable cause or evidence that a victim has been harmed. Editorial. If you ever meet a sovereign citizen that likes to spout this stuff, ask them how they feel about people traipsing across the border, either from the South or the North, and making their way into the U.S. and doing what they damn well please. Um, I am willing to bet you a quarter that they are going to say, well, that's not what I meant, which is nonsensical. Because if, guess what? If it applies to them, it applies to everybody else. Um, that is just the way it is. Now, I'm not necessarily a sealed borders person. I'm not a no-hold-bars open border person. I'm kind of an anarchist when it comes to this. I feel like arbitrary lines in the dirt are kind of silly. Um, the only time my kind of hackles get up is when I feel like, um, you know, you can come on in, but maybe we need to think about how we are distributing um, the limited resources we have here because, you know, if you haven't been here, if you're not paying taxes, if you just wandered in, we got to take care of the people that are here already first. But, you know, that's very controversial and, and a lot of people really hate my take. So um, it's logical, it's humane, but it's also a, a topic for a different podcast. So let's let's keep going. So um, section one, so specific language and use of words. First, sovereign citizens claim that to drive is to go on the roads by a motorized conveyance doing business or being engaged in commerce, and it is a privilege. Okay. To travel, on the other hand, is a right, and no legislation can be passed to strip you of your fundamental inherent rights. Why does this matter? Because to state that you are driving is to unwittingly place yourself in admiralty or commercial jurisdiction, and as a sovereign being, you never need surrender your rights and exchange them for privileges. Okay, we just talked about the UCC a little bit. Show me where. I'm kidding. Okay, so the UCC governs. 
the sale of goods. Okay? Liens, los, liens leases, business transactions. Nobody has ever been able to show me how driving anywhere is a business transaction. The UCC does not apply here for any reason. And I don't know why they would bring it up. It, it doesn't help them. But let's keep going. So where are these all where are these allegedly binding definitions come from is a varied and often perplexing matter. Looking to the terms travel and traveler, sovereign citizens believe they refer to one who uses a conveyance to go from one place to another and includes all those who use the highways as a matter of right because the phrase for hire never occurs. Conversely, the term driver is defined as one employed in conducting a coach, carriage, wagon, or other vehicle, and therefore it should be self-evident that, that this individual could not be traveling on a journey, but is using the road as a place of business. Um, nobody has the road as their place of business. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking fast. I'm sure somebody's going to call me out and say, well, this makes it. it. There's probably something I forgot. But in general, your place of business is where you do the work, where you accept the money, something like that, right? So I really don't know of any people who have a place of business as, you know, the five freeway in the middle of California. That is weird. And it almost feels like the people that wrote this have never had a place of business. Hmm, weird. Um, okay, continuing on. Likewise, the terms automobile and motor vehicle denote special meaning. The word automobile connotes a pleasure vehicle designed for the transportation of persons on highways and is private property in use for private purposes. Whereas motor vehicle is defined in 18 USC 31 as every description of or of carriage or other contrivance propelled or drawn by mechanical power and used for commercial purposes on the highways in the transportation of passengers, passengers on property or property or cargo. Let's talk about Title 18. U.S. Code is a big pile of laws that govern things in the U.S. Um, this is referencing U.S. Code Title 18. So what is U.S. Code Title 18? Um, Title 18 is specifically called Crimes and Criminal Procedure. Um, not sure why we're talking about crimes and criminal procedure when we're just discussing driving around on freeways where hopefully, so far, no crimes have been committed. Title 18 is made up of five parts. Those five parts are entitled one, crimes, two, criminal procedure, three, prisons and prisoners, four, correction of youthful offenders, and five, immunity of witnesses. To get to the section the sovereign citizens are, citizens are talking about, you have to go to Title 18, Part 1, which is entitled Crimes. In Chapter 2 of 18 U.S. Code, Part 1, you'll find something entitled Aircraft and Motor Vehicles. Section 31 is just the definition of aircraft and motor vehicles. And that is indeed what the definition, definitions are. That's section 31. Section 32 talks about destruction of aircraft or aircraft facilities. 33 talks about destruction of motor vehicles, penalty when death results, imparting or conveying false information, drive-by shootings, violence at international airports. Okay, you see where I'm going here. They're citing definitions out of a federal criminal code and trying to apply those to 
driving on your local highway. So I'm going to go back a little bit and read that section again. So you can, now that we've talked about what 18 U.S.C. 31 actually talks about, which is federal crimes relative to motor vehicles. Um, so they say motor vehicles defined in 18 U.S.C. 31 as every description of carriage or other contrivance, et cetera, et cetera. We've been over this. Looking to these definitions, sovereign citizens deduce that clearly an automobile is private property and used for private purposes, while a motor vehicle is a machine which may be used upon the highways for trade, commerce, or hire. Moreover, one who uses the road in the ordinary course of life and business for the purpose of travel and transportation is a traveler. I don't know how they got there. I don't know how they took a criminal code. They're just cherry picking. They're just pulling random laws out and saying, this applies. Well, guess what? The federal definitions and codes relative to um, what is a motor vehicle for the purposes of federal crimes um, have absolutely nothing to do with what's going to be done to you in your state or county or city when you are driving around without a driver's license. So continuing on. Um, a non-commercial traveler using a private conveyance such as an automobile, sovereign citizens believe that one should not be required to attain, obtain a license. Pointing to Black's Law Dictionary, editorial, Black's Law Dictionary is not binding on any court in the United States, but it defines license as the permission by a competent authority to do an act which, without such permission, would be illegal, a trespass, a tort, or otherwise not allowable. A sovereign citizen refutes the idea of needing a license to drive. A license is permission from the government to do something that, without the license, would be illegal. And traveling is not illegal. Under this rationale, one cannot be required to have a license to travel because traveling is a constitutional right. Okay. Um, so, bottom line, let's say they're right. I'm not saying they're right, but let's say they are. How many times do you think that you can get pulled over without a driver's license give this argument before you end up in jail and your car impounded okay this is a circumstance where i am actually taking the position that it doesn't matter if they're right or not even if they are right you do not have the funding or the money or the time if you're gonna actually make money and have a good life to do this to, to fight this all the way to the Supreme Court. Again, nobody's ever shown me a case where it worked. Nobody's ever shown me where this theory won a case on its merits. Never happened. Um, looking at what 18 USC at, at 18 actually says, what it has to do with, this is not persuasive if you actually take all the pieces and pull them together. I don't know why anybody thinks it does other than they haven't sat down and read you know, all the U.S. codes. They haven't sat down and read Black's Law Dictionary. They don't understand what law is binding and what law isn't in the United States. Um, they've never heard of the UCC, right? They don't understand that admiralty law is not the place you want to be, okay? So those are the things that I wanted to cover today. Although looking at the time, we're at about 22-ish minutes. I think we have time to do maybe one more segment and then some editorials and then we'll call it are uh, roughly a half an hour episode. Um, again, like I said in the last couple of episodes, I'm not trying to go much over 30 minutes on these. Um, it is, it's a couple of things. It's uh, sleep inducing <laughs> sometimes. And it's also kind of rage inducing, right? Because all of us are out here trying to build a better life, trying to provide for our family, trying to, you know, build freedom into, into what we're doing. And we have these folks out there that maybe they are coming from the right place. Maybe they really do think that 
Um, you know, a driver's license is the fight to pick with, with the federal or the federal government. I'm sorry, the federal government does not do driver's licenses. I'm tired. Not the fight to pick with your state government, okay? Maybe, maybe they think that is the fight to pick. I don't think that's the fight to pick. Um, like I said, I have a kid. I have friends. I have a life. I have a job. I like doing stuff. Um, does that make me whatever it is they like to call me? An agent of the crown? I don't know. Maybe. Um, I don't know. I'm not saying that we have all the freedom that we want. I'm saying that there's other ways to fight for more freedom and the driver's license seems like not where I personally would start. I personally would and have started with things like licenses to carry a firearm. Join your local group that's fighting for constitutional carry. Maybe think about that. Think about um, requiring a permit to change your damn water heater. Um, that's a thing in Washington. You don't want to do a straight across swap for a new water heater? You need a permit. Uh, that's that's a fight I'd pick. I'd, I'd pick that fight with the county. Um, sure, I think that's crazy. Um, I think that's a money grab, and I think it's ridiculous. Um, so my point is, like, it's a silly it's a silly fight to pick. It's a fight you're not going to win. You're just simply not. And it's a fight that could really, really mess you up, because if you can't drive... Um, Depending on where you live, if you can't drive, you can't work, um, you can't get anywhere. Um, how do you haul stuff back to your homestead? How do you, right? How do you do any of those things? So, um, yeah, that's that's my editorial on that. All right, two, the right to travel. Beginning with this correct terminology, sovereign citizens point to a surplus of Supreme Court and state court precedents that recognize a right to travel. The four most common cases and quotes reproduced across most sovereign citizen forums are 1. The use of the highway for the purpose of travel and transportation is not a mere privilege but a common fundamental, fundamental right of which the public and individuals cannot rightfully be deprived. That's Chicago, Chicago motor, motor Coach vs. Chicago, um, 169 Northeast 221. And two is the right of the citizen to travel upon the public highways and to transport his property thereon either by carriage or by automobile, is not a mere privilege which a city may prohibit or permit at will, but a common law right which he has under the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In that case is Thompson versus Smith, 154 Southeast, or SE 579, and, all, and those are all in the, in the article. Three is the right to travel as a part of the liberty of which the, of which the citizen cannot be deprived without due process of law under the Fifth Amendment. Kent versus Dulles, 357 U.S. 116 at 125. The right to travel is a well-established common right that does not owe its existence to the federal government. It is recognized by the courts as a natural right, and that's Shackman versus Dulles, 96 App DC 287, 225, F second, 938 at 941. Um, looking at these cases, sovereign citizens believe it could not be stated more directly or conclusively that citizens of the states have a common law right to travel without approval or restriction license, and that this right is protected under the U.S. Constitution. Furthermore, as a right that is fundamental to our existence, sovereign citizens believe that the right to travel can never be abrogated or regulated in any way. So they take that and they move into three, which is the right not to be stopped. At traffic stops and DUI or border patrol checkpoints, sovereign citizens will often contest the legality of the state action and recite questions such as, am I free to go? Or what is your articulable reason for stopping me to any and all questions by the police? 
They may refuse to speak whatsoever, simply pressing a piece of paper against the vehicle's window. This resistance is generally based on one of three notions. First, the government, in requiring the people to obtain driver's licenses and accepting vehicle, vehicle inspections and DUI, DWI roadblocks without question, is restricting and therefore violating the people's common law right to travel. Second, the police may not stop a vehicle or detain an individual absent being able to articulate a reasonable suspicion of a crime being committed. Third, the government cannot tax individuals for exercising their constitutional rights and speed limits or checkpoints are simply an unlawful tax or impost on travel under Crandall versus Nevada. Okay, hilarious, hilarious that they are going are, are claiming these licenses of our, our taxes on your right to travel when i don't see anybody i don't see the same people i don't want to say i don't say anybody because this is something that's being fought but i don't see anybody saying um that the requirement that you do have some training in some states to get a um, concealed carry permit is an unlawful tax on a constitutional amendment i don't see that um how about the right to own property and property taxes um, now, I can't say that sovereign citizens don't go after that because they do, and we'll talk about it later, but it just seems like a, a, a goofy fight, okay? So, um, I'm going to do the intro to part three, section three, and then I'm going to call it there, and then we'll go on to A and talk about it um, later. So, let me read this. It's just, it's short. So, three, a legal response. Most of the sovereign citizens' claims and jurisdictional challenges from capitalization to oaths depend on the natural person's theory. Indeed, if the 14th Amendment did not create an artificial person or an unwitting contract with the federal government, then these individuals would be subject to the federal government's jurisdiction. The redemption scheme also relies on this distinction in that the government has allegedly borrowed against and holds money on behalf of a natural person's artificial straw man. Furthermore, by seeking to enforce traffic laws, the sovereign citizen believes the government is executing its contractual rights against the corporate entity, entity of the artificial, per, artificial person. In rebutting these claims, it is first necessary to establish where a person's constitutional rights are actually found, who decides what statutes and the Constitution means, and what documents or sources have binding legal effect. Not Black's Law Dictionary. I can tell you that right now. While some of the following is fairly academic for trained lawyers, sovereign citizens frequently lack the foundational precepts of the American legal system and constitution. To rebut the movement's substantive constitutional claims, we all need to explain the fundamentals to sovereign citizens before we can reverse the movement's growth or at least keep individuals from getting into fat, hot water. Um, this isn't just a lawyer training thing. Most of this stuff I learned in high school. I had U.S. government, I had U.S. history, I had civics, I had to read the Constitution, we had to present one of the amendments, I don't remember which one I presented, um, it was a long time ago, but this is a basic failure and a gross failure of our public education, but our private too, because I know lots of people that went to private schools that don't know this stuff. Um, I know lots of people that are homeschooled that don't know this stuff. Uh, nobody knows this stuff. And I don't know how to fix it other than those of us that do know this stuff have to kind of seize statements that are grossly incorrect and try and give them information that is correct. Because like I said in an earlier episode, this is not just, oh, we're going to have a difference of opinion and you go believe what you want to believe over there 
and I'll go believe what I want to believe over here. Um, this is real shit and can get you in real hot water. Like I said, you know, you could lose visitation rights with your kids if you're getting a divorce. You could lose your car, your house, your business, your ability to make money. You could end up in jail. Talk about losing some freedom. Um, it's not good. It's not good if you do this. And let me tell you, nobody selling this theory is going to back you. If everything goes to hell, they don't have insurance. They don't, they don't carry malpractice insurance. They don't have a staff or an ethics guideline or any kind of rules saying that if they totally screw up and ruin someone's life, they have to fix it. They're going to disappear. And they're going to have your eighty-eight ninety-nine or whatever the heck you pay them or maybe a lot more money depending on what scheme you happen to get wrapped up in. They're going to have your $90 or your $100 or your $500 or your $5,000. I don't know. Um, and you're going to be stuck. And then you're going to have to go pay a lawyer anyway. Or not. And, you know, I I am not happy with the way the judicial system works. But you're going to get the justice that you can afford, not the justice that you actually deserve. So, you know, think about that. Because nobody sets out to get arrested. Nobody sets out to get sideways with, with the law as it is. But if you do, what's your backup plan? Um there are a lot of public defenders out there that work really, really hard, but they're really, really overworked. Um, there's a lot of instances where you're not entitled to a public defender. So either you got to learn the law and run it or you got to hire someone. So um, you don't want to end up way down this garden path and discover that you're completely wrong. So next episode, we'll consider, uh, we'll consider, we'll continue with the next section, which is 3A, and it's entitled, Dude, Where Are My Rights? So we'll talk about that. And I appreciate everybody listening and love questions. You know where to find me. This has been another episode of The Agorist Attorney. Make it a great week.